With Hashem's assistance, we are learning about Bekama Daf Ayin, page 70. We begin at the top of the page. Amri Nahardoi, it was stated by the rabbis of Nahardea. We do not write an Urchasa as a special type of document. We don't write such a document in regards to movable objects. And this document basically states that if, let's say, Ruvain has something that belongs to Shimon, and now Shimon wants to give it to Levi, Shimon doesn't have it right now. It's in the possession of Ruvain. Ruvain's borrowing it, let's say, or Ruvain is watching it. So now Shimon wants to write the document that will say that Levi cannot collect it. So you cannot write such a document, it's called a harsha'ah, something that gives permission to someone else to take something that's owed to him. You can't write such a document in regards to a movable object. Amar Ravashi, so Ravashi says, La Mamer to a Mamer. My time, what's the reason why you can't write such a document? Amar Lay, so he responds as follows. Mishim de Rabbi Yechon, because of the statement of Rabbi Yechon and Amar Rabbi Yechon, because Rabbi Yechon said as follows. Gazov Alainas Yashua Bailim. Let's say somebody steals something and the owners did not give up hope from getting their object back. Shnehem Einan Yechon Lahakdish. So both parties, both the person who stole it and the person who it belongs to, neither of them have the ability to make it holy to the temple, to give it as a donation to the temple. Zelefishen Shaloit. The one who stole it can't do it because it's not his. And the one who belongs to can't do it because it's not within his domain. There's something missing from his possession. He doesn't have his object within his domain, and therefore he cannot say that it's going to be donated to the temple. So therefore here as well, you want to give over an object, let's say, that, that belongs to you, but it's lent out to someone else. You want to give that object over to someone, a third party? You can't do that unless it's within your domain. If it's outside of your domain, you're missing a part of the possession of that object, and therefore you don't have the full rights to be able to give it over to someone else. That's why you can't write such a document that says that you're giving over to someone else. Ikudamri, there are those who said as follows. Amri Nardoi, the sages of Nardoi said as follows. That you cannot write such a document in regards to objects. You want to give over this object that's lent out to somebody or someone else is watching. You can't give it over to someone else. You can't write such a document. The Kafre, if we're talking about an object that the person who you're claiming owes it to you or has your object, he has denied that it's yours. Time of the Kafre. So the reason is because the person has denied it. The Merci Kashikra. Because then when you write this document saying that your object should be given over to someone else, it looks like it's a lie because the person who you're saying that that object, that he has your object, he's claiming that it's not yours. Avalek Kafre. But he had not denied it. Katsvinen. So the implication would be that you would be able to write even though it's not within your possession. So that would be a contradiction to the first version that we had, the statement of the Nahardea rabbis. Vami Nahardoi. And the Nahardean rabbis said as follows. If you have a harsha, this type of document that you want to give over an object that's in someone else's possession. So if it doesn't say within it, go, have the case judged, merit in the object, and take it for yourself, so it has no value if the document has not written that line. Mind time was the reason. Because the person who has the object right now can say like this, You are not the person who I have to deal with. I have to deal with the person who I owe it to. You're not the person. So until it actually states that you are the person now, you're the person who's taking over the rights to get the object. So the person can always say, the person who has the object can always say, I'm not going to deal with you. I'm going to deal with the person who gave it to me. Amr Abaye says like this, If let's say the person has written into the document that the person who he wants to give it over to, he's not giving it over completely to him, but he's giving over, let's say, half of it or a third of it or a quarter of it. Since he can already get involved with this thing for some part of it, so therefore he can get involved with the din, get involved with the court case for the entire object and get it back for the person who's 
object that originally was. Amar says, If the person who's getting involved here, the person who is, the document is written to him, saying that he can take this object, so once he grabs the object, so we're not going to take it away from him, even if he wants to keep the whole thing, and he wasn't supposed to keep the whole thing. Ravashi, Amar Ravashi says, Once he writes it to him, the person, let's say you have Ruvain owes Shimon an object. Now Shimon wants Levi to go and collect it for him. So Shimon says to Levi, any expenditure that you have in order to get back that object, I'm going to pay you back for. So if he says that and he's not giving it over to Levi at all, Shliach Shavye. So he's made him into a messenger, but he hasn't actually made him into somebody who has the ability to go and take it for himself, and therefore he can't get it back at all. Those who say that no, he made him consider like a partner, because in order for him to, to get anything out from him, so he has to get part of it. What's the difference? If he wants to be able to keep half of it. And basically the understanding would be that if I want you to be able to get it, and the only way that you can possibly get it is by being able to take part of it. So therefore, the implication would be when I make you my shliach, my messenger, is that I want you to also be involved in getting some for yourself so that you can get the whole thing for me, the rest of it at least for me. So now, the Hilkas Ashliach Shavye, and Halacha is that, in, that if someone sends someone else to do it, he's sending him as a messenger, and he's not really sending him to be able to get part of it for himself. And therefore, the ramification would be that he won't be able to take any part of it. Now we begin the Mishnah. Let's say somebody stole, and it was seen by two witnesses, and then he slaughtered the animal, or he sold the animal, and those witnesses saw it. Or two other witnesses saw it. So the Torah states that if someone steals something and then sells it or slaughters it, so he has to pay four or five times the amount. So that's what we're saying over here, that if there are two witnesses that saw him steal it, two witnesses that saw him either slaughter it or, or sell it, so then there's going to be an obligation to pay four or five times the original value of the object that he had stolen. Let's say he stole it and he sold it on Shabbos. Meaning he's done two things wrong at the same time. He's stealing it and he's also selling it on Shabbos, which is forbidden. Gun of a machal Let's say he stole it and he sold it to Avodazar to some idolatry. Gun of a tovach b'yamakipur. And let's say he stole it and he slaughtered it on Yom Kippur. Gun of Mishal Aviv tovach He stole it from his father. And then, so what would happen theoretically if, let's say, the story would stop there in regards to his father? So he stole it from his father. So now, let's, if, his, if his father would die, so then it would revert to becoming his because he's the Yorish, he's the inheritor. But what happened here, before he inherited it, so he slaughtered it or he sold it. And then the father died. So in all of these cases, we're going to see Sunnah Halacha. Let's say he stole it and he slaughtered it and then he uh, made it holy to the temple. He donated it to the temple. All of these cases, you have to pay four or five times the value. So in the case of the son, so he's going to have to pay four or five times value to the, to the estate of his father. Let's say he stole it and he slaughtered it in order to use it as a, a remedy, a cure, or because he wanted to give it to dogs, meaning he didn't want to use it in the regular way he wasn't going to eat it. Let's say he slaughters it, but it turns out that there's a hole in the lung of the animal, so it wasn't a kosher slaughtering. Someone slaughters it, and it's something which was, again, not a good slaughtering because he did it inside of the temple, in the courtyard, and if one slaughters a regular thing in the temple, so the slaughtering is no good. Nevertheless, despite the fact that he hasn't done a proper slaughtering, he still has to pay four or five times the value, because 
it seems, according to this Tana, we don't care about the actual outcome. We care about the fact that you've done an act which constitutes slaughtering, even if it's not a kosher slaughtering. Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon, however, says that in both of these two cases where you haven't done a kosher slaughtering, so it's not going to be considered that you're going to have to pay four or five times the value because the Torah, indeed, when it says that you have to pay that four or five times the value, it's only in a case where you actually properly slaughtered it. And here you didn't properly slaughter it because there was a hole in the lung or because you did it in a place which was inappropriate. So therefore, there's not going to be that obligation according to Rabbi Shimon to pay for the four or five times the value of the original thing that you stole. We begin the Gemara. Let us say that our Mishnah, it sounds like it's not like Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva, because if it was Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Kiva has a concept that the Torah says, Based on two witnesses, can we establish a matter? So the Torah says a matter, and the implication is that you can't establish half a matter. What's, what's the implication? What is the significance of that? So we're going to see very soon that the concept is that if you have two witnesses who are saying half of the matter, half of the testimony, and you have another two witnesses that are saying another half of the testimony, and if you combine the two sets of witnesses, then you'll have the whole matter, that's not going to be good enough. According to Rabbi Kiva, one set of witnesses has to establish the entire idea. So in our Mishnah, so it seems to be saying the opposite of that, because it says in the Mishnah, you have two, you can have two set, sets of witnesses. One set of witnesses saying that he stole it, and one set of witnesses saying that he stole sold it or he slaughtered it. And therefore, you have two separate witnesses creating the obligation for four or five times the payment. And therefore, that sounds like not like Rabbi Akiva. The Tani, we have a bracelet like this. Rabbi Yaisi, when Abba Chalafta went to Rabbi Yechem and Nuri, little material in order to learn Torah, Rabbi Yechem and Nuri, Eitzel Abba Chalafta, those who say actually it was Rabbi Yechem and Nuri who went to Abba Chalafta, Amar Lais, who said to him as follows, Let's say you have a person who's on a field for the first year, there are two witnesses saying that. And then there's a second set of witnesses who testify to the fact that he was there for a second year. And then there's a third set of witnesses who are saying that he was there for the third year. Mahu. What's going to be the halacha? Because the concept is like this. If you, let's say you want to establish the fact that you've acquired a certain piece of land. So if you're there for three years, so you've established the fact that you're there. Let's say you have three different sets of witnesses establishing the fact for three different years that you were there. So what's going to be the halacha? Is that going to be good enough to be considered that I was there for three years and now it's established that it's mine? Amar lehareizu chazaka. So he said to him, indeed, it's considered that you've established the fact that it's yours. So he says to him like this, I would say the same thing. However, Rabbi Kiva argues on this matter, because Rabbi Kiva used to say, that when the Torah says that there has to be witnesses who are establishing a matter, it means that they can't establish half of the matter. So according to Rabbi Kiva, if you have three different sets of witnesses saying that on three different years you were there, and thereby we want to combine all three sets of witnesses to teach you that now you have acquired this piece of land, it's not going to be good enough. According to Rabbi Kivi, you would have to have one set of witnesses stating that you were there for all three years and thereby creating your chazaka, your ability to say that this is your piece of land. So therefore, it sounds like that our mission, again, is not like Rabbi Kiva. Our Rabbi says like this, Afilu Tem Rabbi Kiva, really we could say that our mission is indeed Rabbi Kiva. Wouldn't Rabbi Kiva agree that let's say you have two, you know, there are two different stages of, of marriage. The first stage of marriage is called Kiddushin, when you betroth the woman, but it's not like a betrothal of today where they're just engaged, but rather there's a much stronger thing that's happening. She has become Miyuch, she has become designated to only be married to this person. So there's a certain level of marriage that 
exists. In fact, if she'll have relations with someone else, she's considered an adulterer. So you have that first stage, which is called Kiddushin. Then you have a second stage, which is where she completely comes into the possession in a certain sense, or is born to the home of the man. So that's called Nesuin. That's the second stage of marriage. So that's usually accomplished the way the Gemara is describing it here, through marital relations. So now let's say you have two sets of witnesses. One set of witnesses says that they completed the first stage of marriage. Then you have a second set of witnesses that say that they had relations. So now the significance of the second set of witnesses is only significant because of the first set of witnesses. The Afagav, the ADB, because there's only significance to that marital relations in light of the fact that there was a first stage, which was that they completed the first stage of marriage. That's what. That's the only thing that gives the, the marital relations a significance to make it into the second stage, to complete the marriage. But since the first set of witnesses, they have said something that stands on its own, which is that there was a first stage of marriage, and they don't need the second set of witnesses because that first stage was completed even without marital relations. So therefore we can consider the two statements, the first statement which says that there was a first stage of marriage, and the second statement which says that there was marital relations which completed the second stage of marriage. So even though the second statement, in a certain sense, requires the first part, but since they could stand on their own, the first one does stand on its own, so therefore we don't consider them too interrelated and connected things that require that they all be said by one party, by one set of witnesses. And therefore, even a Rabbi Kiva would agree to such a thing. So therefore, we could say the same thing in our case as well. Even though that there's only significance to the fact that this person, when he stole it, and he slaughtered it, it's only significant because we know that he originally stole it. Since there is significance to the first set of witnesses who are stating that there was something that was stolen, that in itself stands on its own. Without the fact that it was slaughtered, so that's already considered a separate statement, that there could be witnesses on the first statement, and then we can separate it from the second statement, and there could be a separate concept that's being brought about by the second set of witnesses as well. According to the sages who argue on Rabbi Kiva, so how do they learn out the fact that it says in the Torah that based on two witnesses, so the, the concept has to be established, it's implying they have to establish the entire concept and not half of a concept. So since they don't learn that you have to have one set of witnesses teaching you an entire idea, you can actually separate it into three different sets if necessary, so then how do they learn out? What do they teach you from this? Let's say you have two witnesses, and they want to establish the fact that a certain young woman is now an adult. So the way that they establish that is that when a, a, a young woman has reached puberty, she has two hairs, so then it's considered that she's an adult. So now one of them is saying that I saw a hair on her knuckle. Another one is saying I saw a hair on her stomach. So that's not considered good enough because you have two separate witnesses saying two separate things and therefore that's not going to be con- good enough to combine the two ideas. The one says, wait, not only is this half a matter, but this is half of testimony because you have no two witnesses saying about either thing, either fact. All you have is one witness saying that you have it on the knuckle, one witness saying on the stomach. That's irrelevant. These witnesses don't have any value on their own. says It's coming to exclude the following case. You have two witnesses stay, stating that they saw a single hair on her knuckle. And you have two separate witnesses that are saying that they saw one hair on her stomach. So each of them are saying something which has validity. And now you want to know if you can combine them, you can't combine them. In the end all, each one of them is only saying that she has one hair. And therefore, when it comes down to it, all they're saying is that she is still a minor. And we can't combine the two statements to get the fact that now the two hairs combine and now she's considered an adult.
The Gemara continues. There's that if somebody steals something and sells it on Shabbos, so there's still going to be an obligation on the person who stole it to pay four or five times the value. That says the opposite. Potter, that there is no obligation on the person to pay four or five times the value since he sold it on Shabbos. How do we explain that? So Rabbi Barachama can explain as follows. The potter, when do we say that there's no obligation to pay for the value? We can have a case where the same act that created the sale, it also involved an act that created an obligation for the person to be killed. And we have a concept of whenever there's an obligation for death, so there's no obligation to the monetary values that occurred, the monetary obligations that occurred at the same exact moment. So the case is like this, where he said to him, the person who was buying it. So Ruvain stole it from Shimon. Now Ruvain, who stole it, wants to sell it to Levi and thereby create an obligation to have to pay four or five times to the person he stole it from. So now, how does Levi say, I want to acquire it? He says to him like this. Levi says to Ruvain, Ruvain was the person who stole it. Levi says to him, cut down a fig from the tree. And when you cut down that fig, so that's my fig, you're going to acquire it, and in, and in acquiring that fig, you're going to create an obligation to give me the thing that you stole, and I'm going to acquire the thing that you stole. It's a bartering process. So now, so Reuven goes to cut down that thing to acquire the fig, and thereby sell it to Levi, the person who owns the fig. And now the person, the Levi, is going to acquire the stolen object. So in doing so, in creating the sale, so he's doing an act which is forbidden on Shabbos, which actually creates an obligation for him to be killed. So the mecher, the sale occurs instantaneously, simultaneously with the act of transgressing Shabbos. So now there's an obligation for death at the same moment as there's an obligation to pay four or five times the value of the original stolen object. And therefore, whenever you have those two things at the same time, so there's no obligation to pay the monetary things if there's an obligation also for death. So that's the understanding why in the Bryce it says that there's no obligation to pay the four-fifths, four or five times, I'm sorry. But in the Mishnah, there is an obligation because we're not talking about a case where he's done something where he's actually transgressed something, a uh, prohibition on Shabbos. So I think Mar says a challenge to that. Amri, we say like this. If now the person would go and say, the person who has acquired it by saying, Levi who says to Ruvain who stole it, Levi says to him, go and chop down the, the uh, fig off the tree. So now, if he would come to the person who sold him the object and bring him to court and say to him, I want you to give me either the object or give me back my dates. We will not obligate the person who is the guy or the original person who stole it to actually give him either his fig back or give him the object that was stolen. Why? Because you always have an obligation to be killed. So then the whole sale is invalid. So in that case, the reason that there's no obligation for him to pay the four or five times to the person that he originally stole it from is not because he has done something which created an obligation for death at the same time as he sold it. It's because he hasn't actually sold it at all. There would be no obligation for him to actually give over the object to the person he sold it to. So you can't tell me that that's the case. Alam, or a rather says that what's the case where there's an obligation for death at the same moment that he's creating the sale? It's as follows. Throw the stolen object into my possession, and then I'm going to get the stolen object. And I'm going to pay you for it later, says Rashi. So now, at the same moment that it's being transferred into my possession, I, the buyer, so at that moment, that's when there's an obligation for death. Why? Because he's throwing it from one domain, let's say the public domain, into a private domain, which is forbidden on the Sabbath. And therefore, it's going to be an obligation for death at the same moment as the transfer is taking place. And therefore, there's not going to be an obligation on the person who has stolen to pay four or five times the value 
to the original owner since he has an obligation at the same moment for death. The Gemara says, who does this come out like? It comes out like Rabbi Kiva, the Amar Kaluta Kemishuhun Chadamia. He holds that when does the transfer take place into the possession of the person who's buying it? At the moment that it, it soars into the airspace of his chutz of his courtyard. And at the same moment, that's when he has transgressed the forbidden thing on Shabbos. Even though it hasn't actually landed on the floor of that courtyard, Kaluta Kemishuhun Chadamia. When it's in the airspace, it's as if it's already on the floor. Because according to the sages, came in the Mati Lachatzer Basic Kana. So according to the sages, they hold that you haven't transgressed the, the forbidden thing on Shabbos until it actually falls onto the floor. So now, but when have you acquired it? And when is the person who sold it, or actually, when is the person who's buying it acquired it? At an earlier point, before the actual transgression has occurred. The transgression occurs, according to the sages, when it hits the floor. And when has it been acquired? It's been acquired when it already entered the airspace of the person who's being thrown into his courtyard. Again, the Ikirabon, because if according to the sages, when it gets into the airspace of the courtyard, so then that's when it's been acquired. So the sale has occurred. That's when there's an obligation on the person who stole it to, to pay four or five times. But there's not going to be obligation for him to be considered that he transgressed the prohibition until it actually reaches the floor. So they're happening at two separate moments. Therefore, they're not hap- happening simultaneously. And therefore, there's no tour. He's not going to get out of the monetary obligation according to the sages since it's happening at two different times. But I'm like Tikni So Gemara says we could say even according to the sages, you could say that the case was where he said that you should not acquire it until it actually reaches the floor, not when it actually enters the airspace of the of the courtyard. And therefore, the two things will occur simultaneously: the, the transgression of the prohibition on Shabbos, the creation of the obligation for him to be killed, will happen at the same moment as the transfer from from the person who's selling it to the person who's buying it. And therefore, there will be no obligation in this case as well, for even according to the sages, for him to pay for the four or five times the original amount of the value that he stole. Rava Amar, Rava says a different explanation, different possibility. We could really say like the original understanding of Rami Barhama that we were talking about where he chopped off the te'ena, the fig, and that's when it transferred into his possession, into the third party possession, the object. So we said it's not considered that it was sold at all because if you bring him to court, he can't force him to give him those things. So it could be like this. We have a case called an esnan. An esnan is something that was used, let's say an animal that was used as a barter to pay a prostitute for her services. So the halach, the Torah says that such an animal cannot be brought in the temple, in the Beis Hamikdash. It's something that's mituav, it's something disgusting, and it's not to be brought such an animal as a korban, as a sacrifice in the temple. So now, esnan asra Torah. The Torah says it's forbidden to bring such an animal that's been used to pay for a prostitute. Now, even if, let's say, someone has relations with his mother, which is absolutely forbidden, the Torah forbids such an act. So now, if he has relations with his mother, and the mother wants to come and say to him, you have to pay me, if directly she brings him to court and says, pay me, would the court say, you have to pay for the, for the act that you did? No. And the reason is, because since she did an act, they did an act together, which was absolutely forbidden, which creates an obligation for them to be killed. So the court will not obligate any monetary compensation. Even though we would not obligate him to pay, why? Because they've done something which is absolutely forbidden. If he does give it to her, it's still considered a compensation for something that he doesn't have an obligation to pay for. So what do we see? We see you could have something which you're not obligated by the courts to pay for, but it's still considered a compensation for the thing that you've done. 
Hachanami. So here too we could say, Afagav delaying Tashlumen, even though in regards to the payment, in this case, what happened? You had a person who was a Ghanim. He stole something. Ruvain stole something from Shimon. He stole an animal, let's say. And now Ruvain wants to go and he wants to sell the animal to a third party to Levi. Levi says to him, Here, cut down a fig. Take this fig, cut it down, and now that the animal is going to transfer into my possession. So what happens? So indeed, that's what happens. But if you want to take him to court, Levi, the person who's trying to get the animal, wants to take the person, Reuven, who stole it, take him to court and demand the animal or get back his fig, the court is not going to pay. But nevertheless, despite the fact that the court is not going to create an obligation, why? Because there's a kimle, at the same moment, there's an obligation for death on the person who has cut down that fig. So despite that fact, it's still considered, we see from the esnan of the zona, we see from the payment for the prostitute, that it's still considered a payment, even though the court can't require it. Afilu hachi, so we continue on to Ayin Alpha, and Aleph, page 71a, nevertheless, came in the call, makni lebahachi, since it does in fact transfer through this, havi mechira, it's considered a sale, and that's why there would be, it would be necessary to say in that case, we could say that that's the case of the Brisa, where there's no obligation on this person, there is a sale, and despite the fact that there is a sale, there's no obligation for him to actually give the object which he has sold over to the person that he sold it to. And there's also an obligation for him to pay four or five times the amount to the person that he originally stole from.